Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. In this sermon, we look at some of the differences between the Beatitudes stories, and we look at what those differences and what the Beatitudes mean for us. You're listening to Blessed Are You or Not by Guest Minister Reverend Scott Jose. It's good to be with you this evening to lead you in a consideration of a portion of God's Word. We're returning to Luke's Gospel tonight at the sixth chapter. I'll be reading verses 17 through 26. Luke 6 at the 17th verse. Jesus went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the outstanding Bible commentator and teacher, Frederick Dale Bruner, once summarized the character of each of the four Gospels this way. Matthew is the Gospel for teachers. Matthew is all about education and knowledge and understanding things correctly. Mark is the gospel for evangelists. It's fast-paced and dynamic, and it gets to the heart of Jesus' power immediately and all over the place. John is the gospel for elders and spiritual leaders. John's theology is thick and weighty, and it takes some maturity to get through it all. But Luke's gospel, Bruner says, Luke is the gospel for deacons and social workers. Luke is the gospel where Jesus is forever extending his hands in deeds of mercy and healing and in lifting up those whom the rest of society had cast aside. And you can see that all over the place in Luke, of course, but we certainly see it this evening in Luke's version of the Beatitudes. Now, in preaching classes at seminary, I'm always telling my students that when preaching on any one of the four Gospels, don't spend time in the sermon making comparisons to the other Gospels. And in particular, don't do that when the account of what is surely the same story is different in Luke's version than in, say, Matthew's version. It's just not a great move to do in a sermon. A, some people find it distracting. B, some find it distressing. C, some people don't care. It's a good rule for sermon writing, and so I'm going to break that rule right now, because good rules can have exceptions, especially when they're mine. 
And then again, if in what I'm about to do, if some of you find it distracting, distressing, or boring, well, don't tell you I didn't warn you that might happen. Even so, many of us know that the better known version of the Beatitudes comes from Matthew 5 at the very beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. A powerhouse three-chapter section of, of amazing teaching and preaching in Matthew. Luke, however, has Jesus saying these same things, but not on a mountain, but on a plain or in a valley somewhere. And what's more, Luke's version seems far more earthy, far more physical than Matthew's telling of it. Luke has Jesus saying, blessed are the poor. And Matthew adds, in spirit. Luke's Jesus says, blessed are those who are hungry. But Matthew adds, for righteousness. Seen from a certain angle, then, one could conclude that Jesus in Matthew 5 is being a little more spiritual than the Jesus in Luke 6. And if you think that way, it's confirmed when Luke includes something that is completely missing from the Sermon on the Mount, and that is a corresponding set of woes. Woe to you if you are rich now. Woe to you if you are well fed now. Woe to you if you are well thought of now. Well, there's nothing particularly spiritualized about those statements. I mean, having lots of money and plenty to eat, that's about as concrete and earthy as you can get. Of course, Luke has been throwing down this particular gauntlet from the get-go. Before you can even get out of Luke's opening chapter, we see the young woman Mary singing a song we now call the Magnificat. C.S. Lewis once called that a terrible song, but it wasn't an aesthetic judgment, like saying it was a bad song. No, Lewis meant terrible in the sense of shocking and startling and unsettling. Because here's this young woman crooning away about how God is going to scatter the proud and exile the wealthy and send the powerful away empty-handed. But the poor, the lowly, the despised, we're going to get elevated to heights of glory that we could scarcely even imagine right now. And if you doubt that Jesus has the power to make all that happen, to bless the poor and the hungry and the weeping and the despised, if you doubt Jesus can actually do that, those doubts are erased in how Luke sets up the Beatitudes. In the first verses that we read tonight, we are told that power was fairly leaking out of Jesus. People with every need imaginable were flocking to Jesus just to touch him or to be touched by him because you could get healed of your diseases, you could get set free from the demons that torment you just by quite literally rubbing shoulders with Jesus. Jesus was that powerful, that redolent of divine energy. Jesus was downright radioactive, but in a good way. And so anyone who at that very moment was capable of delivering all of that, he surely knew what he was talking about in blessing some and cursing others. But if there's one thing that Matthew and Luke have in common, despite some of those differences I just noted, it is this. In both versions, Jesus turns and speaks these words, not just to the whole crowd, but specifically to his disciples. Jesus turns from the larger crowds and addresses the people he had already called into his kingdom 
by grace alone. And among other things, that means that just being hungry or poor or sad or despised is not some automatic ticket to heaven. But when you are a disciple of Jesus, and any of those things are true of you, then know that God has your back. Know that you will be filled and you will laugh and you will enjoy life in God's eternal kingdom because the way things are now are not a preview for how things will ultimately be. Then again, that also means that if you are a follower of Jesus and you are rich or you're well off or you're happy or you're well thought of now, well, those things might be warning signs. Because if there's one thing that is eminently clear in the Beatitudes, it is that all of these blessings and all of these promises come from God and from God alone. And if you are poor and hungry and sad and persecuted, then you know that you have to depend on God alone. You cherish your faith. You cherish your connection to Jesus. You lean into these kingdom promises as though your very life depended on it because it does. But when you're well off in most every sense, the number one spiritual danger is feeling independent. You fancy yourself a, a self-made rugged individualist. You earned what you have by the sweat of your brow and the cleverness of your own mind. And if others are less well off, well, then they should get a job like you did and earn their own keep, same as you. And if you ever let that line of thought proceed too far down the road spiritually, then sooner or later we might find we no longer regularly thank God for his gifts to us. We don't pray that God preserve us and keep us in our families. And, and we don't lean into the kingdom as if our very lives depended on it because we've already taken care of our own lives by, by shoring up our investment portfolios and putting insurance in place to make sure that the nest that gets feathered is feathered by ourselves alone. So the Beatitudes themselves are not meant to be automatic entry tickets into the kingdom of God, and the corresponding woes are not meant as automatic dismissals from the kingdom. But what both involve is kind of like looking at life upside down. Years ago, in the first sermon I preached in a series of sermons on the Beatitudes from Matthew's Gospel, I asked my congregation, what Mr. or Miss Beatitude would look like. I mean, suppose a given person perfectly embodied all the traits Jesus described. What would that person be like? Well, probably not always a barrel of laughs. I mean, the perfect embodiment of the Beatitudes would yield a person who was perpetually dissatisfied with life as it mostly is. No incident of injustice would ever just roll off Mr. Beatitude's shoulders. Government corruption or sheer ineptitude that ended up hurting innocent people would cause Miss Beatitude to weep and lament. This person would have no patience for idle cocktail party banter. Mr. Beatitude would always be championing lost causes. Miss Beatitude would forever be our, our angering corporate types or anyone who tried to justify almost anything for the sake of the bottom line. 
In short, the person who perfectly embodied the Beatitudes would look a lot like, well, Jesus. Because as far back as the early church, preachers and teachers and theologians concluded that only Jesus is truly Mr. Beatitude. The only hope the rest of us have to move even a little bit in that direction would to, be gain, to gain conformity with Christ through our baptism. We get more like Jesus through our subsequent constant baptismal living of dying and rising, dying and rising with Christ. Such dying to self and to the world so as to rise to Christ and to the kingdom is what we're called to do every day. Now we cannot do that, of course. It's only by grace that we have been saved, and it's only by grace that we can become more like Jesus. I mean, it's what the Holy Spirit builds in us, not what we manage to accomplish on our own that brings us into the kingdom. But that's also where the struggle lies, isn't it? None of us finds it that easy to live countercultural lives, None of us likes flying upside down or, or looking silly in, by the world's way of calculating standards of success and happiness and the good life. The church is always tempted to try to look a little bit more like the culture in which it lives. Those of us familiar with Hendel's Oratorio Messiah and its most famous part in the Hallelujah Chorus, there's a certain line there that a lot of us know by heart. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ. But sadly, in recent years, not a few of us have noticed, and so many of my pastor friends have gotten crunched by a sad reverse reality that seems to have taken hold in many churches that we didn't notice it until recently. And that is that the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ has become the kingdom of this world. The pandemic and a slew of political realities running alongside it and straight through it have revealed that some esteem a certain version of American culture more than they do Christ and his cross. When push has come to shove in some places, neighbor love and Christ-like sacrifice have taken a back seat to personal freedom and the idea that nobody can tell anybody else what to do. But that's just on the larger scale. Most of us, myself most certainly included, have private struggles aplenty when it comes to trying to become more like Jesus. Do we fit the categories that Jesus called blessed? And are we working against adopting the mindset of those things that Jesus called cursed? We all know how uncomfortable it is to look into the mirror of Christ. Well, it's easy to point our fingers at others but like with the prophet Nathan confronting King David about that bad business with Bathsheba and Uriah, so the Holy Spirit keeps coming to each one of us and says, no, you are the man. You are the woman. And like David, we can only respond by saying, well, shoot then, <laughs> I have sinned. Where then is the hope or the grace exactly where it's always been, in the face of Jesus himself. 
Because if Jesus had turned to his disciples to speak these blessings and also these woes, how do you think he looked at these people he had already called by grace alone? Do you think he screamed those woes at them? Did he look angry? Was he wagging a bony finger in their faces and trying to frighten them? That seems unlikely. You know, the Bible rarely, if ever, tells us how somebody said something. The Bible isn't the place to turn if you want to read lines like, she said gently, he said laughingly, she said tersely. Now, we're mostly left to imagine the acoustics. And so I imagine, though I can't prove it, but I imagine that when Jesus spoke even these woes, he did so with an earnest gentleness, maybe even with a tear or two forming in the corners of his eyes. I mean, he loved those disciples. He loves you and me. He wants the best for us, wants to see ourselves in the blessings and not the woes. And he's here to help us be that way by his own tender mercy. And sometimes it's hard to picture all of this. What does life in the kingdom look like? How will the poor and the hungry be filled? How will those who weep now one day laugh? If we all got more like Jesus, what would we see? It can be hard to imagine this, but once in a while you get a glimpse of it. And it can come from a surprising source. Now you may have heard me use this story before because I've used it in several sermons and I lose track of what I preached where. Or maybe Pastor Peter has used this, but, but one such rather surprising kingdom glimpse comes from the very last scene in Robert Benton's lyric 1984 film, Places in the Heart. Set in Texas in the 1930s, the movie portrays Edna Spaulding, who is suddenly widowed in the film's opening scene when a drunk young black boy named Wiley accidentally shoots Edna's husband, who's also the town sheriff, through the chest. Wiley is quickly lynched by the white townsfolk, even as Edna is left with a, a pile of debt thick enough to choke a horse and two very young children to raise. Well, eventually Edna meets Mose, a black migrant farmer who knows how to raise cotton and so is hired by Edna to make enough money to save herself from foreclosure from the town's local but very heartless banker. And it works. Edna makes enough money to save her farm. But the white townsfolk are not happy that Mose is around. And so dressed up in their Ku Klux Klan outfits, they come to the farm one night, beat Mose mercilessly, and force him to flee. And as Edna watches Mose leave, and as the question hovers in the air whether without his help she'll be able to save her farm again next year, well, it looks like the movie's over. Except then there's one last scene. It's in church. It's Sunday morning. The pastor delivers a sermon on love from 1 Corinthians 13, and then they serve communion. And that's where the film becomes surreal, but also deeply, deeply theological. Because first you notice that the church, which had been at, at best half full in earlier shots of the congregation, the church is now completely full. 
But then to the startlement of us viewers, suddenly we see the bread and the wine being taken by a woman who had died in a tornado earlier in the film. The town prostitute is there too, sitting next to the heartless banker who was so unfeeling in the face of Edna's fear of foreclosure. And then we see members of the KKK taking the Lord's Supper. And what's more, they pass the trays of bread and wine to Mose, the black man who's suddenly sitting there in church next to Edna and her family. And finally, Edna takes the bread and the wine and then she passes it to her husband, who is suddenly sitting next to her again, and next to him, Wiley, the black boy who had killed the sheriff and been killed himself as a result. And as the sheriff and Wiley eat the bread and drink the cup, they look at each other and they say, the peace of God. Well, this scene has confused people for years. In fact, if you Google end of places in the heart, you'll find all kinds of articles and blogs that chalk this scene up to a fantasy. This has to be a dream inside Edna's head, one blogger wrote, because clearly a scene with this black man sitting in a white church with Klansmen and a murdered cop, well, it has to be a dream because it's not at all like this world. And that much is right. This is not like this world. But it is the kingdom of God. And if it seems upside down to the daily realities we're used to, that's because it is. And if it seems like a dream, then it is the one dream of a creation made new that will come true. It will come true because in the church and in each one of us, it is already becoming true. Blessed are you then if you are poor, hungry, weeping, and despised because you will experience all the fullness that just is the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ. Thanks be to God and amen. Please pray with me. Lord our God, for your kingdom, for your having brought us into it by a grace we didn't deserve and still really can't fathom, we're grateful. Help our lives, O oh Lord, in ways big and small, privately and publicly, give people showcase windows of this wonderful reality that is the kingdom of God. And when they see it, O oh Lord, by your grace and spirit, perhaps you can call them. Follow me so that they too can join us in being filled, in laughing, in rejoicing through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.